Hey, hey, and welcome to a special edition of The Ben Shapiro Show. While we're in this holiday week, we'd like to bring you guys some of the terrific content over on The Ben Shapiro YouTube channel, some things you maybe haven't seen before if you normally enjoy the show exclusively on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. So today, I'm going to share some videos with you from a reaction to some great reviews of this podcast, to why I'm leaving California, to why Hollywood elites rejected Hillbilly Elegy. I hope you enjoy. I also hope you will subscribe over at youtube.com slash Ben Shapiro for even more exciting videos we've got planned for 2021. Without further ado, let's get into our first video. The Ben Shapiro Show has received over 100,000 reviews. It makes me happy to say the vast majority of them are incredibly positive, but there are always a few haters. Haters going to hate, in the words of a great artist. So today, I am taking a look at the mean reviews folks have left, as well as a couple of nice ones for good measure. Trucker Bob says, smart conservative talk. Ben has got to be one of the smartest, fast-talking conservatives I've ever listened to. Speaks the facts, never distorts them. First conservative podcast I subscribe to. Love the Sunday special. Oh, Trucker Bob, that sounds great. I'm so glad that you've enjoyed the show. Sweet Tea and Pasta says, you're my go-to man. Ben, you're my go-to guy for thoughtful, insightful facts related to all sorts of topics. You make my commute to and from work productive, and I appreciate your thoroughness on every topic. I'm a centrist that voted both Democratic and Republican in the past. I can't stomach the idea of voting Democrat now that they've jumped the shark. Keep up the good work. Well, again, these are these are nice reviews. I'm enjoying these ones. Oh, but here we go. Yep, okay. Inside the mind of a demented child. Ooh, this one's gonna be good. With the voice of a prepubescent boy and the reasoning skills of a rejected teenager, Ben Shapiro navigates the world of politics like a true sycophant. His sentences are constructed like a comment on Breitbart and his pitiful self-soothing assurances that his master is still mighty are painful to listen to, but do elicit sympathy. Get well, young man. One day you'll shine like the sun. That's a good review. I kind of, I kind of enjoy that one. R2D2, better. Eight, that's the name of this account. So it's time to take him seriously. <laughs> one star. Hmm, how do I say this kindly? This podcast is just awful. It's biased. If it wasn't a biased news source, I would listen to this. But this guy is truly annoying in every way. His voice is annoying as hell. Biden rules. Okay, so I'm going to continue with this review in one second. Just a, a, a quick note. First. If you would listen to the show, if it were unbi- like, what did you think you were getting? Did, did you think that I was going to be on? Unbi- like, I'm, I'm pretty clear about my, my biases. As far as my voice being annoying, as hell, I, fact check true. Biden rules. F Trump. Trump dump is fired. Ha 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 ha. Stupid conservatives. As a Christian, I vote Democratic. It represents what Jesus Christ is, except for the abortion rules. <laughs> That's a small except right there. It's, it's true. Democrats, you know, they, 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 are, they represent everything Jesus Christ believed in except for Christianity and also the, the murder of children. Is that Yeah, this guy is not funny and needs to disappear from the media. Well taken, R2-D2. Appreciate it. Leslie Pearson says, spot on, Ben Shapiro is killing it. Grateful for Ben's objective approach to news, which is sorely lacking in mainstream media. With data and a thorough understanding of the law and history on his side, Ben calls out both the pros and cons plus hypocrisy from all parties involved. I appreciate his often used both and approach versus either or biased reporting all too common today, informative, smart, and funny. Well, Leslie Pearson. I'm glad that my mom is writing reviews now. That's pretty awesome. One star from Purifach53. Bad, just not good. I mean, that, that's what it says in the dictionary under bad. Vixiaz, one star. Ben compares Trump to Hitler. So true. I thought Ben supported Trump and the conservative right, but he compares Trump to Hitler. Thanks for shedding light on that, Ben. You're right. The more I thought about your arguments, the more I see the similarities with Trump and Hitler. Um, I have not compared Trump to Hitler. Also, what? One star, Bad Boy Club 2112. Corporate. Can't respect anyone who loves Hillary this much. Sorry. Uh, anyone who loves Hillary this much? Yeah, that's true. That's what I'm known for, is my kind words about Hillary Clinton. 
JB601, super biased. I had heard that Ben Shapiro's show was great to listen to because he was conservative, didn't vote for Trump in 2016, would criticize Trump frequently. I had high hopes to listen to someone who was not biased, who was objective and rational, and would put country over party. But after listening to a few of his shows, I'm disappointed that he is super biased towards Trump and Trumpism. Yes, if there's one thing the show is known for, it is definitely the sycophantic worship of Donald Trump. That is definitely what we do here on this show. Jordan K. Atkinson, one star. Please, if you like this podcast, please read a history book or turn on some world news. Please, you need perspective. Also, MSM doesn't mean what you think it does, lol. What, what does it mean then? I don't know what MSM, what? what? Pastoral Daryl Messina, the very best. No one can sell a mattress like Ben Shapiro can sell a mattress. Fact check, true. But first, a seamless segue will gently caress your expectations from one of political humor and truth to an understanding that deep down, this capitalist company wants to make money just like the rest of us. And I'll get to why that is right after we talk about why we all need to get our hands on a custom mattress just like Ben Shapiro has. That is one of the best reviews I've ever seen. That one is very, very good. Also true, Helix Sleep makes excellent mattresses. Thornton TB says, honest, five stars. Ben will make you say, yes, that's right, or no, no, what's wrong with you? As proven by some of these other reviews, but he tells it like he sees it. I love his analogies and temperament, and no one can out-debate him. He's quick-witted and sharp as attack. He doesn't drink, so sometimes I like to listen at one half speed. Drunk Ben is hilarious. Yes, I've gotten this review many times, is that if you actually speak, if you actually take my podcast speed down to one half, uh, then it sounds as though I'm in a dorm room arguing with you about the existence of your chair. Uh, and drinking heavily at the same time. Biava says, Ben's bright, bold, and honest. While I don't agree with all of Ben's views, he's really great at cutting through all of the noise to get to the heart of today's most important issues using facts and trustworthy sources. He lays bare the overt bias and untruths regularly pushed by the MSM, often simply using their own words to show how they are constantly pushing their agenda and maligning anyone who doesn't agree with their version of events. It's my favorite podcast to listen to each day. Thank you for the kind words, Biava. That's very nice. Marvin JG, biased show, extremely biased. One of my favorite things about some of the negative reviews is when it sounds like a Dr. Seuss book for children. So I, I liked bad, just not good. Biased show, extremely biased. Redfish, bluefish. Why waste time? Say lot word when few word do trick. ZJ961. If the chipmunks were faux intellectuals. <laughs> if you're contemplating killing yourself, but haven't been able to follow through. <laughs> this fake intellectual. And self-important pipsqueak will help you finally muster the will to end it all. He mistakes talking fast and the odd big word equate with intelligent thought. Well, you mistake incomplete sentences for complete sentences. So, teenager in paradise. Three clown faces. Wow, all the sheep love this clown. It is true. You know, I, I walk around town dressed like a clown and just a bunch of sheep follow me. It's very weird. Ego queen. What the actual heck doesn't deal in reality? The gaslighting is extreme. Also, for the last time, Antifa is an idea, not a group of people. And Joe Biden did win the election. If you're going to be a bigoted idiot, at least get your facts right. Antifa is a group of people. Um, okay. ACS 999. Dork. Guy is nuts. Okay, again, that one goes along. I love all, all the, the, the reviews where it's like one word and then a small phrase, like it's a haiku. Really like the ones. Prison Mike. He writes, one star. Trash. And I never got caught, neither. Trash from a little goblin. <laughs> that sounds like a fantastic children's book, does it not? Trash from a little goblin. Mama Matthews, getting paid much, Ben? Sponsors are how he makes money, people. You've broken the code. My God, they're on to me. You listen to his crap and he gets paid, period. Wake up, people. Wow, I mean, I was hiding the ball there, but now 
the myth has been exploded. I make money off of the ads I read. I don't just actually do those for fun. Who knew? Awesome Narwhals writes, annoying, pretentious troll, garbage. Okay, so again, no argument from me. A42B, one star, ignorant fascist, never listen to the craps. So first of all, you should not listen to other people crapping. It's gross and impolite. The bog of eternal stains. Never understood that. Never understood why people talk to each other while they're on the toilet. Now is not the time for jibber jabber. Never listen to the craps. Also, whenever people call me a fascist, I'm like, what the? I'm a libertarian. I'm like the opposite. What are you talking? But that guy is right. Don't listen to the craps. The Shauna 32, right wing bias. I find it way too biased. America deserves better. Yeah, go back and listen to your objective news media. They're not biased at all. I'm confused by how many reviews suggest that they were expecting something unbiased. Am I unclear on this? Clavin makes it look easy. Five stars. Good info. Ben is no Andrew Clavin, but he does a good podcast. So first of all, glad to see Andrew Clavin is listening to the show and leaving reviews. But actually, you should listen to Drew's podcast. It is pretty good for, for a man who died 30 years ago. Marthy 16, Nazi apologist. If you listen to Ben Shapiro, I'm begging you to listen to real news and drink some water. You deserve better. So definitely hydrate. Also, I am a Nazi apologist. I always love this accusation that I, Ben Shapiro, Orthodox Jew, am a Nazi apologist. Hmm, spot on. Oh, here's another one. A sad Vlad is bad. A sad Vlad is bad. Okay. Lol, Nazi scum. Compelling, compelling stuff right there. Alaskan Pure Organics. Racist bigot. Racist bigot. Ben is a Nazi who spews our hate-filled white supremacist propaganda. Yes, that's what I'm known for, is the white supremacy. Indeed. Once again, nothing says Nazi quite like the yarmulke. Five stars. I am obsessed. I'm a 27-year-old female. My husband has been listening to Ben Shapiro for several years now. I never understood his obsession until this past weekend when my mind felt so incredibly muddy and confused and overwhelmed by all of the overwhelming news about the 2020 election from the MSM. Needless to say, I decided to give Ben Shapiro a listen, and boy, am I glad I did. I'm now subscribed to him and planning on listening to every new episode. I felt so much better after listening to what he had to say about what is going on in America right now. He is calm, collected, logical, and extremely objective. And an added bonus, he's extremely funny. I found myself continually laughing out loud at his multiple jokes. Cannot recommend listening to him enough. Well, that's very nice. And tell your husband I say hi as well. Thanks for listening to that recap of listening to my YouTube videos. Next on my list of favorite YouTube videos we put out this year, why I left California. Let's jump in. Big announcement. Are you ready for it? Big, 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 big announcement. So I have been asked 1,000 times over the past few years, why in the world are you in California? Like why? Why would Daily Wire stay in California? I mean, this place has turned into a hellhole. All you do all day long on the show is just complain about how bad California has been. And the answer was that I've been in California literally my entire life, except for a three-year stint when I was at Harvard Law School in Boston. Aside from that, I've spent my entire life in California. And I love this state. It's a beautiful state. It's a state with a lot of culture and a lot of fun to it. You know, it's, a, it's a great place in terms of activities. You got the beach nearby. You got Disneyland. And then over time, it just became a hellhole. And it has become a hellhole at this point. And so yesterday, we here at The Daily Wire announced that we are moving the entire company to Nashville. So just yesterday, Governor Jerry Brown, former governor of California from 1975 to 1983, and then again from 2011 to 2019, he said, where are you going to go? 
Where are you going to go? You can't, you know, okay, you, you say that California is bad. Where are you going to go? The answer is we are going to Nashville. We are taking the entire company and we are picking up and we are leaving and we are putting our headquarters in Nashville. Okay, that, that is where the company will now be located. We're taking all 75 of our jobs and we're taking our tens of millions of dollars in annual revenue and we are moving all of that outside the state of California. And this is specifically and really only due to the crappy governance of the state. It is not because we are foreign to the state. Again, I've lived here my entire life. My business partner, Jeremy Boring, has been here for 20 years. My parents have been here longer than I've been alive. We're not doing it because we dislike California, because we are newbies, because we couldn't take the heat, anything like that. I've been here the whole time. We are leaving because this place has become so horribly governed that if you have the means to get out, and if you have a company relying on you, and if you have employees who are relying on you, you are going to leave. We are but the tip of the spear. We are not the only ones. Elon Musk has already decided to leave the state. He'll probably be taking a lot of employees with him over time. Joe Rogan has already left the state. We are leaving the state as well. Again, we are taking 75 employees who are based in California and we are moving. We have about 100 employees across the country and we are relocating to a state that is not run like garbage, Tennessee. And now, did, did my business partner and I, did Jeremy and I and Caleb Robinson, our other business partners, did we ever think that we were going to be moving this company to Nashville? No, otherwise we wouldn't have built up these big, beautiful studios here in Los Angeles and employed a bunch of people in Los Angeles. And hilariously enough, when we announced this to our employees, we thought, okay, a lot of people are going to be very upset about it. It turns out far more of our employees are excited about leaving California than would be excited about staying in California because this place has become unlivable. Not only is the rent too damn high because of all of the garbage zoning regulations here, but the quality of life here has degraded radically. Now, I'll be honest with you, I had a tough time convincing my wife just to leave California. Okay, and to be frank with you, I'm going to be spl splitting my time in some different places, not just in Nashville. But the fact is that trying to get my wife to leave California was not an easy task because she, too, has spent a lot of her life in California. She lived in Sacramento, and now she lives in L.A., and so she's been in California for a very long time. And over the past two years, she's looked around and she said, okay, I guess you're right. And the reason for that is perfectly obvious. Between the city of Los Angeles deciding that they were going to cede the entire city to low-level criminality, they were not going to enforce the law, they were not going to keep the streets clean, they were not going to make it livable for me to allow my children to play outside of our front gate without adult supervision. Between them allowing the streets to become incredibly dirty and dangerous, because here's the reality, if I let my kids walk around the neighborhood, they will stumble across two open needles during the course of that walk, because the city has specifically told law enforcement they can't do anything about the rampant homelessness problem that has plagued Los Angeles. There are 66,000 homeless people in L.A. County. Every single underpass in L.A. has entire living facilities for homeless people. This is not, by the way, sympathy to the homeless, many of whom really need serious help. They are drug addicted or mentally ill, and the city has decided that in the name of freedom, they are going to allow the suburbs to be overrun by this homelessness problem that does affect people who are paying their taxes. And between that, between the fact that they've decided to defund the cops and move away from allowing the police to do their jobs entirely, between the increased taxes and the higher levels of crime and the lower levels of cleanliness, between the fact that God decided to plague the state with a giant wildfire spate over the last several years, apparently. It's like, I, I didn't need the help, God. Like, I got it. I got it. I didn't need the signs and the wonders to drive me from California. And frankly, I'm just hoping that when Michael Knowles looks back at California, as we make our way out, that he turns around, he looks back, and he immediately turns into a pillar of salt. Like, that is my dream. But whether or not that happens, we are leaving, and you're going to see more of this. Again, you're going to see a lot of this. New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. You're going to see this in L.A. You're going to see this in San Francisco. People are going to pick up, and they are going to leave. And the people who are most likely to leave are the people who can afford to leave. Let's be honest about this. The people who are going to get trapped in Los Angeles are the people who are lower middle class. 
because they don't have the wherewithal to pick up and leave. They don't get to decide, honestly, where their jobs take place. As the head of a company, I get to decide where we take our jobs, and we are excited to allow our people a better living standard moving to some place like Nashville that is not governed like garbage in a red state, then forcing them to stay in a place that is very difficult to raise children and to live. But blue states for too long have thought that they can govern as badly as they want and there will be no consequences. That's true to a point. And then beyond that point, it is no longer true. We have reached the breaking point. We are leaving. And so Daily Wire will see you in Nashville. And that's why I left California. To end today's episode, let's take a retrospective look at why Hollywood rejected Hillbilly Elegy. Today, I want to talk about a movie I saw over the weekend. It's really ticking off cultural elites. It is Hillbilly Elegy. Now, if you haven't already seen Hillbilly Elegy, stop the video right now. I'm going to spoil it for you. Spoiler alert. It's been spoiled. You're, you're warned, okay? So here is a quick overview of the plot, which is based on a book by J.D. Vance. The book is called Hillbilly Elegy. It was a huge bestseller, so like 3 million copies. And basically, Hollywood picked up the rights to this on the heels of the 2016 election with people believing this was sort of the decoder ring for the white working class vote. As we'll discuss later, reviewers no longer like the idea that anybody should even examine that white working class vote. And so instead, they've decided that the movie's really bad. In any case, let's do the plot real fast. So the main character is J.D. Vance. Okay, He's played by a couple of characters, young J.D. Vance and then older J.D. Vance. Young J.D. Vance is Owen Ostelos, I think it's how it's pronounced. And older J.D. Vance is Gabriel Basso. Young J.D. Vance, obviously growing up poor uh, in Ohio, in sort of a, a burned out rust belt town. Uh, and obviously he has Appalachian roots as well. And then older J.D. Vance has made it to Yale Law School. And so basically, this is the story of how he got from being in a burned out town with a drug addict mother to being at Yale Law School. So you've got young J.D. Vance, you got older J.D. Vance. Then you have Amy Adams, who plays Bev. That's his mom. His mom had him when she was a kid, you know, 18 years old, essentially, uh, and uh, has become a drug addict and a child abuser. I mean, is really the best way to, to view it. Glenn Close plays his grandmother, who is Bev's mom, who is in a relationship with Papa. Uh, Papa dies about halfway through the movie. Glenn Close's mama is the heroine of the story. She is in the book as well. She's sort of the person who who teaches JD that he has to break the cycle of cultural impoverishment that he has been sort of ensconced in. That's the theme of the book. The theme of the book in Hillbellyology is that there are cultures of poverty that exist outside of various minority communities that exist in the white community. They lead to economic depression. They lead to people making bad choices. They lead to opiate addictions and heroin addictions and all sorts of other addictions. And they ruin lives. And you have to make actual individual decisions that are good in order to get out of that. And you need good influences like Mamoy, who is played by uh, Glenn Close here, looking exactly like, uh, like J.D. Vance's actual grandmother. Haley Bennett plays Lindsay, who is J.D. Vance's older sister and who sort of takes care of him and fends off Bev. Older J.D. Vance has a girlfriend who is named Usha. Eventually, Usha in real life is J.D. Vance's wife. Uh, and Ron Howard, of course, is, is the director. And I, I will say the performances across the board are very, very, very good. I mean, particularly Glenn Close as Mamaw is really strong. Now, people are acting like it's a caricature, but I've talked to J.D. Vance and J.D. has suggested that actually that's kind of what his grandmother was like. Amy Adams' performance, I mean, she is, she is transformed. I mean, Amy Adams is a beautiful woman. She plays somebody whose beauty has been completely washed out by life. Uh, she is tremendous in the film. Now, there is no question whatsoever that if this film had not been seen as a sort of referendum on Trump voters, it would have gotten sterling critical reaction. No question, right? If this had been a play on how Trump had ignored rural voters, then it would have done great. Right? If all these people at the end had voted for Joe Biden, all of the critics would have been like, amazing, amazing stuff. But because the book 
and then eventually the movie were deemed to be a sort of examination of the Trump voter. You cannot portray Trump voters sympathetically. And so there's this vast gap between the critical reaction to the film and the audience reaction. Now, if you're the audience and you watch this movie, it really is not political. It is just an up by the bootstrap story of a kid who grows up in rough circumstances and is guided by his grandmother toward a better life and makes better decisions and how you break cycles of cultural poverty. But because it was perceived to be a pro-Trump piece, even though Trump is never mentioned, it has nothing to do with Trump, the, the basic idea of the critics is that it is very, very bad. It's very bad. In fact, if you want to see, you know, sort of one screenshot of the two Americas, look at the Rotten Tomatoes score versus the audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. It's like 26% positive for the critics on Rotten Tomatoes and 81% positive for the audience on Rotten Tomatoes. You don't see that sort of gap particularly often, except when the critics have decided to let their politics infuse how they cover the film. Okay, so here's what some of the critics were saying. So Darren Franich of Entertainment Weekly said, Howard thinks he's making an inspirational tale. He doesn't realize it's an American horror story. Um, no, I mean, there's a lot of horrifying stuff in the film, but what Darren Franich is actually objecting to in reality is the same thing that so many people on the left object to, which is that the story, J.D. Vance's story, really is about the idea that individual decision-making can overcome cultural impoverishment. Richard Brody from The New Yorker says, with his soupy and personal manipulations of memory and experience, void of the burrs that attach them to the world at large, Howard, whether intentionally or not, has made a libertarian's fantasy. Not sure how it's a libertarian fantasy, considering it never actually talks about government inter interventionism. And it doesn't suggest, as the book does, that welfare may in fact be a detriment to people who are making bad decisions. It doesn't talk about welfare at all. It just says that family can help you get through hard times and strong family members can help you pick up the pieces and make a better life for yourself. But apparently that is now libertarian fantasy. You see, for, for our entertainment critics, the only movies that are worthy of being made are movies where America sucks and America's suckiness can only be cured by either some sort of woke cultural moment or by massive government interventionism. Alison Wilmore from New York Magazine says, the film is like a package of assorted chicken parts that can't be assembled back into something approximating the shape of an actual animal. There's way too much of some stuff while certain essentials are missing entirely. Now, let me just point out that if the movie had hewed closer to the book, if it had included all of the cultural commentary about the evils of the welfare state and about the failures of government to fill in for church and schools and local institutions, the critics would have hated it even more. Instead, they, they like movies, again, that are really about how America sucks and uh, the only way that these rural people can do better is by escaping their roots, leaving them behind and becoming members of the left, right? Or where everybody in these towns is treated not with any sort of sympathy, but simply with malevolence. Like Vox recommended that you watch Winter's Bone instead, which is a very cynical take on people who live outside America's major cities. So how exactly have some of the people from Hollywood in the film reacted to the negative criticism? Well, many of them are not even defending the film. So Amy Adams said, I would never presume to say what critics should or shouldn't do. Everybody has a voice and can use it how they choose to use it. Let me just say, if somebody had criticized any other Amy Adams film this way, she would probably suggest that the critics had an inherent bias. But nobody will ever say that in Hollywood because, of course, a lot of the people who signed up for this thing didn't think it was political. Ron Howard obviously didn't think it was political. He appeared on CBS this morning on Tuesday, and he said, I do feel like they're looking at political thematics they may or may not disagree with that honestly are not really reflected or are not front and center of this story. And that's kind of right. So Ron Howard kind of, in the movie, he kind of strips all of the politics from the story because Ron Howard is sort of just a good Democrat, and he sees it as an uplifting story, and not just an uplifting story, but a good commentary on how you can make good decisions, which last I checked used to be something that liberals shared with conservatives. But we have moved beyond that. There has been this cultural transformation between when the book came out and when the movie came out that has happened. And it turned 
Hillbilly Elegy from a good book that liberals liked to read to a bad book that should never be read because Hillbilly Elegy suggests a couple of things. One, again, you can make good decisions that overcome your past. And two, that rural white people ought to be understood. And both of those are premises that the left has decided to deride completely. Rural white people, in the view of the leftist cultural elites, are not worthy of understanding because, after all, they are members of the white privileged sect of the United States. All institutions were built for their benefit. And second, even these people cannot pick themselves up by their bootstraps because no one is able to be picked up by their own bootstraps. And Hillary Clinton, you know, she, she used to actually tout hillbilly elegy, but what she said about hillbilly elegy is essentially what the left eventually took away from hillbilly elegy, which is that all of these people don't deserve any sympathy at all, right? Clinton wrote about hillbilly elegy, quote, a culture of grievance, victimhood, and scapegoating has taken root as traditional values of self-reliance and hard work have withered. There's a tendency towards seeing every problem as somebody else's fault, whether it's Obama, liberal elites in big cities, undocumented immigrants taking jobs, minority groups soaking up assistance, or me, right? That is the way that, that Hillary Clinton sees the people in the movie. So it's no wonder that the critics who also see these people that way are very upset with any movie that treats them as human beings with actual problems and who actually are capable of making better decisions. So back to the critics. So The Vulture, which ran like 83 pieces about how terrible the film is, which is how you know the film is not bad. It's actually quite good. Sarah Jones writes, the hillbilly elegy phenomenon is frustrating for many reasons. As a film, it's irresponsible, even grotesque. And the memoir the movie is based on filters author J.D. Vance's personal experiences through right-wing tropes about poverty and social collapse. See, the movie's bad because the book is bad because J.D. Vance is himself a conservative who has written for National Review. Here's the key line. Both the Netflix adaptation and the book says this columnist for Vulture, are unnecessary. Nobody needed to suddenly understand the Appalachian region or its problems because Appalachian studies is a real field of scholarship. You can get degrees in it. Oh, weird, because like um, I noticed that black studies is also a field of scholarship, and yet every single movie about the hardship that black people experience in the United States is celebrated by people over at Vulture. Weird. Seems like Vulture only wants to hear about one group of people in the United States. Why? Because the basic supposition, again, is that if you're from Appalachia and you have had a bad life, and you grew up in a culturally impoverished circumstance, you're still not a victim because you're white. The Atlantic took a somewhat different tack here. In their review, they say, the film and book need Appalachia to be poor, broken, and dirty because they depend on us believing that the mountains are somewhere we want Vance to escape. They need to frame poverty as a moral failing of individuals as opposed to systems because they have to imply that something about Vance's character allowed him to get away from his hillbilly roots. Okay, now, num quick, quick note. Something about Vance's character did allow him to get away from his hillbilly roots because he is one of a rather small number of people who have gotten away from hillbilly roots and made it to Yale Law. I mean, that is kind of a unique story, is it not? So if he were just, you know, a natural creation of the system, you'd expect that a lot of people from his neighborhood would have ended up at, at Yale Law. But according, again, to this columnist for The Atlantic, hillbilly elegy has to simplify people and problems of Appalachia because it has decided to tell the same old pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps narrative that so many of us reject. Ah, that's the key, right? You reject the narrative, therefore you reject the movie. You don't like the idea that people can actually make good decisions and make their life better, and therefore the movie is bad. Okay, Alyssa Wilkinson at Vox.com talks in her review about one particular scene. So there's a scene in the movie, where, and it's in the book too, where J.D. Vance goes to a fancy dinner and he doesn't know how to use all the various forks at the table because that's not how he grew up. In the book, people, he starts telling people about his background and they're kind of interested in it. Um, and, uh, and in the movie, people sort of look askance at him. So here's her description. She says, in the movie, Vance's story plays out quite differently. After an emergency call to his girlfriend, J.D. sits at the dinner table with fellow students and attorneys from high-powered law firms. He is nervous. While making conversation, he says he is from Ohio and that his grandfather moved there from Kentucky's hill country to work in a steel mill. A quiet falls over the table. Everyone glances at each other knowingly. Nobody says anything. They change the subject while J.D. sits crestfallen and mortified. I yelled at the screen when I saw that yelling happen multiple times throughout the movie. 
And yet that's exactly why the scene rang so false. It seems impossible everyone at the table would take JD's biographical note as embarrassing. Instead, as Vance himself points out in his book, his background makes him intriguing, someone different from the usual bunch. The movie can't seem to imagine that, however. Its writing feels vague and hazy, unacquainted with the world it's portraying, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so here's the thing. I went to Harvard Law School. I've been in this particular world. Here's what actually happens in that scene. So in that scene, J.D. Vance sits down at the table. He is going through the forks. And as he is going through the forks, he is talking with people. And he brings up the fact that he has sort of this hillbilly background. And people are kind of awkward about it. And then he mentions that his family is descended from sort of the Hatfield-McCoy stuff. And people start getting interested. They actually do start getting interested. And then one person at the table says, well, it must be kind of a relief to get out of, you know, hillbilly town. And J.D. Vance gets offended. Okay, this is called a dramatization for the movies. But are we supposed to pretend that there is no scorn for people in rural Appalachia at Yale Law School or at Harvard? That they don't call people rednecks at Harvard Law School or Yale Law School? They do. I went to Harvard Law School. There is obviously a certain level of cultural sneering that exists for people who live outside the big cities and don't abide by all of the cultural niceties of the, of the left at these major universities. So to pretend that J.D. Vance would have been welcomed with open arms in all of his conservative glory, his ex-military glory, because of course he had served in the military as well, is really quite silly. I think what the movie brings out is it brings out the subtext, right? I mean, the subtext is that people will treat you tolerantly, but then behind closed doors, they'll be like, oh, that, that redneck. There's a lot of that. There is a lot of that that happens in the upper echelons of the educational world. Okay, so here's the deal. The movie is actually good. And if you didn't care about the politics of the movie, then you just see it as an empowering personal story of how a person rose out of tragic circumstances, a mother who is a drug addict, growing up in poverty, you know, being taken out of his mother's home by his grandmother, grandmother and grandfather having their own set of circumstances that his grandmother got pregnant when she was 13. Right. And that, that's a great story. That's it's a great story. It's well acted. It's well shot. It's well produced. Ron Howard's a good director. That's the bottom line. But the media cannot accept that this is a good movie because to accept that this is a good movie, you have to accept a baseline value that left and right used to agree on, which is that America is a place in which people can rise and are capable of making good decisions and are capable of moving beyond their personal circumstance and cultural circumstances. That's a message the left completely rejects, completely rejects. And they particularly reject it if you're talking about white people who apparently are not deserving of any coverage at all, as that vulture column suggests, because after all, white people are the most privileged among us in American society. So why even bother covering this sort of stuff in the first place? Just a quick note here. That's how you got Trump. Keep going with the sort of cultural sneering at everybody who does not fit your bill of the new woke coalition and see how it works out for you. Cultural arbiters in the in the entertainment media. Thanks for tuning in to today's special episode of The Ben Shapiro Show. We'll be back on air on January 4th. In the meantime, head on over to dailywire.com slash subscribe to not only listen, but also to watch every single episode of The Ben Shapiro Show we had in 2020. See you next year. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So... 
I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving. 